participants to be with us. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for being a father to us and for being uh, the perfect kind of father. We thank you for your love that uh, encourages us, that gives us hope, that uh, in times when we need it, chides and disciplines. Lord, we thank you for always giving us uh, access to yourself through Christ Jesus, your son, our elder brother. We do pray that you would bless us today by the Spirit of Christ that is among us, as you've promised. We pray that uh, we would do all things to your glory with Christ in uh, our near view. Bless us, we ask, for his sake. Amen. Well, today is kind of a continuation of some of the themes that we introduced last week regarding areas of parenting that require wisdom. Uh, Since it's kind of that continuation, I do want to provide just a short recap of a few of the things that we discussed previously. First, first off, there are uh, certain specific things that God has commanded of parents. And he's outlined those things for us in his word, hasn't he? Uh, What are some of the explicit commands from God to parents? What are some of those explicit commands that parents are given in God's word? Do not exasperate your children. Great. Stephen? God's law. Okay. The whole law of God itself, right? Anything else? Yes. Okay, teach them to love and teach them about Christ. I agree. Good. Yes, Scott? Yep, discipline uh, when children disobey. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. Uh, instruct children in the ways of the Lord. Stephen mentioned God's law already, but... Uh, Ephesians 6, 4, uh, Deuteronomy 6, Proverbs basically chapters 1 through 9. Um, provide for their physical needs, 1 Timothy 5, 8. Regard them as blessings in Psalm 127, uh, 3 through 5. And as Anne mentioned, refrain from exasperating them. So God's word explicitly commands parents to do those specific things. And so far over the past few weeks, Pastor John has, I think, touched on each of those commands to parents. But secondly, because scripture is not explicit in many of the areas of day-to-day parenting, therefore, much of how we parent our children requires wisdom on the part of the parent. And where do we as parents get this wisdom that is required for the job? What's that? God's Word. Okay. So yes, start there. There's no better place to start than God's Word. And we we mentioned some of those areas of uh, specificity already. We begin with God's written revelation to us. We can take the general... Proverbs, uh, the principles from our Bibles, and we can then apply that, employ those principles in our homes. And I hope that's what this class series has so far helped us to do. But God also gives us another form of revelation. What is that? I heard it. Nature. That is the, the revelation of his world around us, which is just as equally a source of wisdom as his written word is to us. How do we know that? Well, because God himself uses his own creation to teach us, doesn't he? We can go to the ant and learn from God's creation about things like diligence and self-discipline and planning, and organization, and cooperation, and so on. We can watch, and study, and learn from the deduction of our own minds, or shall we say human reason, which is another form of God's revelation to us, even through our own reason, about both basic and complex facts about his created world. We can learn even from each other, can't we? God has given us not only our own reason, our own observations and imaginations and experiences with the created order to learn from, but he's given us other human beings to uh, follow their teaching 
and listen to them and learn from them and their experiences. Tribes and people groups and cultures all over the world in different times throughout history have known and practiced this means of instructing and learning with the knowledge that's often flowing from the more gray-haired to the less gray-haired, right? From the more wrinkly skin to the less wrinkly skin. Uh, from the aged to the youth. Um, that is how information has flowed in terms of uh, wisdom. Wisdom. Not only do we know this by nature, but we see this even explicitly instructed within the church in the context of Titus 2. So wisdom and knowledge about parenting, yes, it comes from God's word, but it also comes from nature, from the created world around us, including others who God has placed in our lives. And while we ought never to put human reasoning on par with divine revelation... We also ought not to discount human reason, but to test it against Scripture to ensure that it adds up, that it aligns, and then uh, apply that as we are able. So far, so good? Okay. So, as we segue to our first topic for today, I want us to consider one other thing that we learn from nature, and this will kind of give us a little bit of a, a springboard into our topic for today. Yes, this is something that even the pagans can know apart from Scripture. And that is the simple uh, thought that both light and darkness cannot coexist in the same space, in the same way, at the same time. Can we deduce that from nature? Yes. And can we also see that in Scripture? This is one of those naturally revealed principles that is also mentioned in Scripture as a means of illustrating a spiritual truth. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we can see there in verse 14 and following what the Apostle Paul is saying using nature, both with regards to light and darkness, as well as the equal and unequal yoking of animals to get a job done. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord, what harmony, he says, has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so the Apostle Paul uses a truth found in nature and he applies it in a spiritual way to those of us who profess to know Christ. And what is the point that the Apostle is making here? That those who dwell in the light of Christ cannot have real lasting fellowship with those who still live in spiritual darkness. One cannot serve two masters. One cannot serve Christ and Belial. The temple is an illustration given to us here along with idols. Uh, idols, you cannot... The temple is, is meant for service to God. Idols are not in service to God. The two cannot coexist in the same place. It's like two rowers in the same boat rowing in opposite directions. How far are they going to get? Now, depending on who's stronger, they might go one way or another a little bit. They might go in circles for a little while. Or as he puts it, using an analogy from the farm, unequal yoking. Two different animals, maybe different species or breeds, maybe different size and weight. They cannot be tied together under the same yoke and be expected to uh, be productive in the way the farmer wants them to be. So it is, so it is with our relationships with others in, in this world. And while this verse is often applied in the context of marriage and the marriage relationship, the truth is here that Paul intends this uh, even with broader application, including all kinds of relationships and potential partnerships between Christians and those who have no desire to follow Christ and his commands. Uh, it's been interesting as we read and study Psalm 119 in our evening services. Just how desirous the Christian is and ought to be for God's law. Uh, we, don't, we don't see that in the world around us, in unbelievers. There's no love for God, so there's no love for his law in the way that the Christian knows and loves God and shows that by obeying the commands of Christ himself. 
So this brings us to our first topic this morning. Uh, today we are dealing with uh, an extension of last week, wisdom issues and parenting. Today, friendships, dating, and pre- uh, preparing for marriage. Uh, Augustine wrote in one of his sermons, uh, our first topic this morning is friendships. Augustine wrote, in this world two things are essential, a healthy life and friendship. God created humans, he says, so that they might exist and live. This is life. But if they are not to remain solitary, there must be friendship. I love that. So unless you're going to move to a deserted island and live there all by your lonesome, you cannot or should not at least avoid friendship. As Augustine says, friendship is essential to life. So why talk about friendship in a class on parenting? Well, because I think the foundation for friendship, namely identifying the stuff that makes a true and good friend, I think that is formed in our youth. And so from a young age, we are learning what it looks like to live in a a common society with other people. And within the context of that commonality that we share, we form friendships to varying degrees or another with those whom we share lives with. Thus, as parents and as grandparents, we have the task or responsibility to pass on information and instruction regarding friendship to our children and grandchildren. We, we can tell them, here is what to look for in a friend. Or maybe even more importantly, here is how to be a good friend. How do we do that? Well, first and foremost, I think we do that by pointing our children to God's word and teaching them what God says about friendship, both explicitly in his commands as well as prohibitions, but also implicitly through texts that describe rather than prescribe uh, examples of healthy friendships. The Bible has more than a little to say about friendship. I don't know if any of you have studied that at any depth, but we could look at a few passages this morning, beginning with Proverbs 13, verse 20. There we are told, whoever walks with the wise becomes or grows wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. There's a positive and a negative there in that text, isn't there? Like the, the compare and contrast that we often see in many of the one-verse Proverbs. Uh, a com- uh, a whoever walks with the wise will grow wiser, uh, but a company of fools will be harmed. Proverbs eighteen twenty four: A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Regardless of how many friends a person has, in real life, IRL, in real life, or socially on the interwebs, uh, no matter how many friends a person have, uh, a man of many friends can still come to ruin, but we have hope that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Some of you have friends like that here on earth, visibly, tangibly, maybe you're married to that friend. But for all of us, we have, if we are in Christ, that greater, greatest friend who is Jesus. James 4.4, James rebukes and says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We have that dark and light contrast again. Therefore, he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, You have to choose friendship with one or the other. Proverbs 27.6 Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Describing the actions of true friendship. A true friend is willing to lay it all on the line for the sake of the other person. And love for a neighbor and speaking the truth in love. Faithful, we're told, are those words which may wound for a moment. And yet an enemy will kiss and flatter and suck up to you. Proverbs 17, 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Earnest counsel, that's a part of friendship. And we could go on, but kind of the culmination, I think, scripturally speaking, of what friendship is and true friendship looks like is John 15, 13, isn't it? 
Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friendship, uh, the love that phileo love is um, uh, laying one's life down. It's sacrificing for the sake of a friend. As a brief aside, it's interesting to note how Jesus had friends. How even uh, he was closer to some friends even than other friends. Out of all the people that he ministered among while he walked on the earth, he had uh, just 12 disciples, didn't he? Just 12 out of the thousands of people that he came in contact with throughout his ministry. And of all the people, uh, out of all the 12 that he he spent day and night for many uh, months with, he had among those 12, three special confidants, uh, Peter, James, and John. They've been called his inner circle. He took them places that he didn't take the other nine. Took them to the Mount of Transfiguration, among other places, the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there through thick and thin until they weren't. Uh, But still, Jesus was that friend to them. We have descriptions also throughout the scripture. We won't go into these details, but we've already seen earlier this year with uh, brother David Bain, Ruth, and Naomi, and there's a friendship there, even though they were related by marriage. Uh, they, they had a, a, a sincere, sweet friendship. Of course, we can't forget David and Jonathan, um, probably the most remarkable friendship of scripture, at least in the Old Testament. And then Paul had friends, uh, more than business partners or ministry partners, they were dear friends to him. I think of uh, Silas, who he was in prison with, or um, Timothy, who he treated as a son, or basically all of the Philippians, who he thanked God for in his prayers. Um, this is friendship. Um, I'm going to go ahead and skip over some of this, but there's, there's a lot to be said about friendship and the importance of friendship in Scripture. We see it throughout church history as well. Uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Haken is a, a Christian historian, and he has a fine article with nine marks, and he examines friendship within the Christian t- tradition. And let me just mention two examples there. One is Gregory of Nazianzus, who wrote about his friend Basil of Caesarea. And he said this, in studies, in lodgings, in discussions, I had him as a companion. We had all things in common. But above all, it was God, of course, and a mutual desire for higher things that drew us to each other. As a result, we reached such a pitch of confidence that we revealed the depths of our hearts, becoming ever more united in our yearning. I love that. And one thing I love about that is these guys like Gregory and Basil and others, they, they're revered for their theology proper and, and some of their uh, deep uh, uh, insights theologically. And here he's talking about something as basic to all of us as friendship. So for Gregory, it was both the commonalities of the mind and, and the common interests as well as The shared desire for the things of God that made him and Basil such devoted friends. Um, I won't read this, but you can read in the preface to his commentary on Titus, John Calvin writes a dedicatory note to his two friends, William Farrell and Pierre Verret, or Verret, I'm not French, Um, Pierre. And uh, uh, he basically says, it seems to me that you two and I were as one person. Um, there's a lot more there that, that I encourage you to read. It's not that long of a, a dedication at the beginning of his commentary to Titus. Now, we all know that most friendships don't develop overnight, do they? Like with many aspects of our lives, we mature into our relationships with other people. And those relationships can change over time, uh, get closer or further away, depending on God's providence in each of our lives. So back to parenting, when we are instructing our children about friendships, we may teach them different aspects of friendship at different ways, at different periods of their development, right? Some of you are already thinking, how do I translate this to my toddler? Others are thinking, oh, I I need to apply this perhaps to my teenagers. And it, it does apply to both ends of that age spectrum, for those of you with very young children, have you ever set up a play date with your friends and, and their kids? And when you put your kids in the same arena, sometimes it might be more of a tea party. Sometimes it's more of a cage match in the octagon. Uh, sometimes it's a little of both and tables and teacups are flying and 
But you see, we train our children, even from very, very young ages, how to interact with other human beings, don't we? This, this sounds so basic, but, but I don't know if we've thought about this uh, like this before. If we really, when we put them in those environments, we should actually be seeking to be diligent in training them, and emphasizing even their things like kindness. Well, how does kindness show up? That's an abstract idea for a toddler, isn't it? But how does that show up? Well, it shows up demonstrably in sharing your toy, uh, in not hitting or pushing or you know, belly flopping on the other person, not screaming at each other, and then disciplining when they uh, disobey, when they are unkind or rude or uh, uh, disobedient. This will help them be better friends down the road. Okay, so that's that, that age, that, that younger end of the spectrum. But it's kind of funny, isn't it, how young children don't often have their choice of friends until they get a little older? Uh, for example, I had a friend uh, when I was young who, I, who basically didn't have the choice of being my friend and I didn't have the choice of being his friend. Our moms were friends when they were pregnant with us. And so when we arrived in this world, we were kind of just forced friends from day one. Um, growing up, as our parents stayed friends and did everything together, so did we. But as the years went on, we did eventually find ourselves enjoying many of the same kinds of things in life. Camping and hunting and X-Men and Nerf guns and our dogs and everything else. And eventually we were able to form a friendship that was our own. It was more genuine because of that. And it wasn't just an extension of our parents' uh, relationship with each other. But if our parents hadn't spent the time together that they did, they would not then we would not have likely spent the time together that we did. Does that make sense? And there's a lesson there. And I want to thank Stephen Taylor for still being my friend. I guess one of the points I, I'm wanting to make here is that for us as parents, you have the ability to guide your children from the earliest ages to be around specific kinds of kids, specific kinds of families and children, depending on your judgment call. Yes, you have to, yes, you have a say in who your child's friends are. And when your children are very young, that's based in large part who, on, on who your friends are, right? So there's something to be said about us as adults still in choosing who we spend time with wisely. Because that actually has a trickle-down effect, if I could say that, upon our kids and who they spend time with. Is this making sense? Are you tracking? There's something to be said here about us choosing uh, close friends who have aligned values and priorities in life as we do. Uh, namely, we should find ourselves having the closest friendships with those who love the Lord and are seeking to follow Him, even in the ways that they are raising their children. Now, the obvious disclaimer, I hope, that's, that's there is that we don't have to all agree on everything in order to be friends or, or to agree with other families. You know, that was last week. We talked about that, showing grace and love and deference and being okay with some of those tertiary differences, okay? But we're talking about in general, are, are we putting our families next to other families that are going the sa- rowing the same direction in that same boat, right? Okay. And I would say if we're in the same community of, of church together, that's a, that's a very good, healthy start and a good place to be. As our children get older, we then begin to have more detailed conversations with them about the, what the Bible specifically says with regards to friendship. And we can begin at even young ages and, and work our way up in application of those texts to teach those texts that we just read and begin to apply them in different ways at different times. So even when our children are teenagers... I think it's good for us to remember that you as a parent are still the primary authority figure in their lives. The fifth commandment doesn't have like an expiration date when they turn uh, whatever age, 13, 16, 17, 18. There's still a call for children to honor their parents. And parents still have the duty of enforcing the fifth commandment in their homes. Still have a duty of uh, training a child and disciplining them when they disobey. Even if that discipline begins to look different than it did at one point uh, in your child's life. 
Hopefully there are less spankings as a teenager than there were when they were a child and more conversations, more heart-to-hearts because you've been hopefully shepherding the heart from day one. And some of those conversations, they have to be about who your children choose as friends. As the parent, I'll say this, you reserve the right to tell your child that outside of the classroom or uh, certain, you know, sanctioned activities, they are not permitted to spend extra time with certain people in their lives. That doesn't mean they aren't to be loving. That doesn't mean they aren't to show kindness to one another. Uh, the, the second greatest commandment still applies across the board. But this is where you can bring Proverbs thirteen twenty to bear. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Well, mom, dad, did you just call my friend a fool? God did. Using God's word, you can say, son, daughter, I love you too much to allow you to spend time in the company of fools. Billy Baxter is acting foolish. Stay away. Remember Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Where are you walking? How are you, who are you walking alongside in life, son, daughter? Nor stands in the way of sinners. Man, you're spending a lot of time with that guy or girl. Nor sits in a seat of scoffers. You guys just in a relationship now? You know, these, these passages, I, and I know Psalm 1 is a Christocentric psalm, but we can see practical application even on the horizontal plane with ourselves and our families. Any questions so far? Com- yes. Pastor John said the flip side of all of this is that you want to cultivate in your children the desire to be a good friend and to cultivate in them uh, the virtues. In fact, again, someone's been reading my notes ahead of time because my next sentence is even at young ages, we want to encourage our kids to find and make good friends, but also to be good friends. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, the only way to have a friend is to be one. This is something fairly basic, but I don't know, again, that we think about that so often, it's where the virtues come into play. Yes, Jake. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Jake mentioned that he's heard people say, kind of to, to object, well, you know, I want my children to be salt and light in this world. And you can say, yeah, I want your children and my children to be salt and light too, but they're not. If they're not even Christians, how are, are you, are they prepared? Have you, have you set them up to go out into this hostile world that hates them and the agenda that you and your household are presenting to the world? Are they prepared to be gospel emissaries for Christ if they haven't even professed Christ himself? No. So be careful with that kind of language about we want our kids to be salt and light because even if they are Christians, they're not, they're not prepared. I'm not saying that we can't uh, encourage our children to demonstrate the virtues, to put on the whole armor of God, to uh, try to exemplify Christ in every way. I mean, those are good things, but why would we set them up in that environment? Um, it, it's setting them up for failure too often. Again, this is where I said the virtues come into play. Um, I've heard some people say, well, you know, my kid doesn't have any friends, kind of a loner. Um, he's an introvert, or she's really just really shy. And I would say, I get that. Um, but again, if we're cultivating the virtues such as fortitude, what does courage look like in a social setting? Uh, it looks like going up to someone and saying, hi, my name is David. Can I be your friend? You know, something like that at six years old. I don't think I ever did that, but I wish I would have. Uh, encourage them to be a friend to others. 
Um, we're going to go ahead and move into our next topic. Um, but are there any other questions or comments specifically on friendship that we need to address? Daryl? Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, there's a multi-generational apprenticeship that we can all glean wisdom from in each other's lives, um, in our families, if, if that's available to us and whatnot. So that's good. Well, let's talk about what, Ken. Now, let's talk about what happens when friendships turn into something more than friendships, something more emotionally charged, and dare we say, romantical. You guys, I'm just going to send you my notes now that, I mean... It's like a table reading, you know? Dating. Some of us in this room might be able to call ourselves survivors of purity culture. Does that resonate with anyone? Yeah. I remember Anna knows. Stephen, if you, yeah. What is purity culture? It was a movement or culture within Christian circles in the late 90s, early 2000s, which placed a heightened awareness around sexual purity among young single people. Dozens and dozens of books were being printed, plus magazines and youth groups, Sunday school curriculum, uh, and articles published on the internet in these new fangled things called blogs. Remember, it was the turn of the century here. And I remember this in part because I worked in a Christian, at a Christian bookstore here in Mesa back in 2002, and I saw how the dating and relationship section of the bookstore uh, grew to become bigger than the theology section of the bookstore. N- but neither were as big as the uh, charismatic Pentecostal spiritual gift section. And though this movement doubtlessly had good intentions, it ended up creating a whole host of problems, including extra-biblical rules and regulations around dating and male-female relationships. In the early 2000s, it wasn't uncommon to hear pastors and youth leaders talking with their teens and young adults about the differences between two purportedly contrasting models of methodologies and relationships. What were those? Dating and courtship. Um, I, can, I know some of you remember that discussion and debate because I see you mouthing the words. Uh, it seemed like everyone was dogpiling on to share their take on the relationships. Um, I still have a few of those books left, but I've gotten rid of most of them. All those debates about terminology aside, if you remember that at all, uh, Scripture does give us counsel regarding preparing ourselves and our children for marriage. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, Here's a key point, though, I want us to take away from today with regards to dating or courting or whatever label you want to label it with. As the parent, you can and should encourage your children to be discerning with regards to their relationships with others and self-disciplined with regards to their own feelings and actions in their relationships with others. Hopefully, Hopefully, we all agree. Additionally, whether you allow for some kind of dating relationship or not, at whatever, whatever age you begin to allow your children to enter into something like that, you need to encourage your children to view dating, I think, with not an eye towards fulfilling personal pleasure or, or feelings. They make me feel so good. I just, you know, whatever. Okay, I'm not going to, the sap is just disgusting. But to encourage your child to view dating with an eye towards marriage as a useful means to that noble end that God has designed. And that's that's about all I'm going to say about dating specifically. Besides now moving into preparing your children to to marry. Marriage is a gift from God given to man first in the garden and then to every society of people since then. Yes, even in fallen civilizations. So first off, we should encourage our children to get married. (laughs) Yes. You want to define recreational dating? Sport? For funsies? 
dating for funsies, recreational dating, uh, dating for sport. Good idea or bad idea? Bad idea. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. We, you know, dating for, with a view towards marriage should exclude dating for other purposes. Fill in the blank. Personal satisfaction. Satisfy sexual desires. That's off the table, according to God's word, isn't it? It should be part of the rules. We're going to get to this. We're, this is here baked into my notes as well. We want to encourage our children to think biblically about marriage, that it's designed by God, and that it's the norm for human existence. Yes, singleness, we know from Scripture, is a blessing of God as well in a specific context, but it's not the expected norm for society. I think we can all agree with that. I think we should encourage then our children not only to marry, but get married young. We all remember the passions of of youth. Why not get married young if that be God's will for you? Or for our children. Society, I think, has pushed the age of marriage out. And we could spend a whole hour just talking about that. As of 2022, a survey showed that for men in the U.S., the marrying age is right around 30, 30.5. For women, it's 28.6 or something like that. Why is this? Because I think adolescence has been pushed out to extend well into a person's 20s. Children were never taught to grow up, to get out. To go do something with their lives. Where is that healthy ambition that needs to be rescued as one, uh, the title of one book refers to it? Uh, Genesis 2.18 tells us it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable or fit for him. I love that. Ecclesiastes 4.9 and following. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. That's equal yoking. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And then we're told a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's a good marriage text that I've heard my dad use uh, on multiple occasions at weddings. As we who are all married should know by now, marriage is not just about romantical feelings or physical attraction or even sex. These all might be good and important aspects of the marriage relationship, but they are not the primary purpose for marriage. Does anyone know what the primary purpose for marriage is besides glorifying God? What is it? Sanctification. But what's our confession say? Nope, that's second. Right, nope. Companionship. It is not good for man to be what? Alone. In our confession, that's the first thing it says. It's companionship. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. So I always like to take time to remind all of us Uh, whenever I have the opportunity to talk on this, the first aim of marriage is companionship. Children can come later if the Lord graciously wills it. And I hope they do. But marriage begins here with the husband and the wife covenanting together in faithful, lifelong companionship, or as the confession says, mutual help. And that means that even if the Lord never brings a married couple children, they are just as much a family in the sight of God as... Anyone else, including John and Kate, plus eight. However many kids God gives you, wonderful. That is your family. But if God gives you no kids as a married couple, you are still a family in the sight of God. And I just want to say that to comfort and encourage anyone who is married without children or perhaps waiting currently for the Lord to provide them with children. Uh, Those in this situation are not waiting to start a family because the introduction of children does not equal a new family. Instead, they're waiting to grow their family which they did start when they said, I do. I've heard people criticize married couples who refer to their other half as friend. I think that's silly criticism. Um, Ultimately, I think it could be a potential criticism of God himself, who inspired the words of Song of Solomon 5.16, this is my beloved and this is my friend. 
Friendship is the most fundamental aspect of a meaningful relationship, as we've already seen. So what's wrong with calling your spouse your friend? I think of Proverbs 5 as another helpful tool in preparing our children for marriage. Proverbs 5 is it's a tough section of the book of Proverbs because it shows us in dire warnings in the first half of the chapter, a father speaking to his son regarding the dangers of ungodly women who would seek to seduce uh, the man's son or young men. Attempting a, a young man with the lust of the flesh, and not only that, but all for short-term enjoyment in exchange for eternal consequences. Uh, we can point them to verse 15 when we talk with our children, and this goes for daughters as well. We just uh, change out some of the words here. It applies more generally. Listen to Proverbs 5, beginning at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered about streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. There's, there's part of the argument for getting married young. Let, uh, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And so just in this short text, we can glean a lot of practical wisdom that we can share with our children as they begin to age into that age where marriage is not too far away. Monogamy, we could tell them from this text, is the only way that God has designed it. That marriage is an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman for life. Adultery, we can tell them, in all of its forms, is forbidden. Giving in to lustful pleasures is forbidden. Despite what society says today, and even some well-meaning Christians, again, it is okay to marry young. And enjoy the wife or husband of your youth. We can learn here that sexual intimacy is not only natural within marriage, but it is encouraged. Both for procreation as well for mutual enjoyment. And since, since marriage and sex are gifts from God, then God deserves all the praise for them. This is how we can teach our children as they grow about marriage. And we can prepare them in someday looking for a spouse in a, a number of different ways. I think first and foremost, even going back to the basic level of neighborliness, second uh, greatest commandment kind of stuff, loving your neighbor, um, we, we need to encourage them to understand or teach them at a young age to understand what it means to be made in the image of God. Again, this is one of those more basic things. I mean, we find it right from the outset in Genesis and our Bibles. But all of God's creatures are, who are human are made in God's image. We are created with both a body and a soul. And both body and soul are precious to the creator who made them. And so with that, there comes a level of respect that we are to encourage our children have to have, not just for themselves and their own body, understanding that that's what God has given you and that's how he has made you and you are to treat it well and right but for others and their bodies and souls and thoughts and emotions as well. All that God has created, he called good. The body is complex and it is beautiful. And because God created the body as well as the soul, the sexual desires of the human body are likewise good in and of themselves. And we can tell our children that, can't we? The desire for companionship is good, God said. Because being alone is not good. And we saw God's fix to that with a wife that he gave to Adam. Marriage is good. And the marital union is the right and only proper outlet for the sexual desires of the body to be fulfilled. And even in this, it is to be done for the sake of mutual enjoyment and not selfish satisfaction. We are made in the image of God. I think the cardinal virtues come into play with regards to justice, doing what is right and good towards others. Prudence, how does prudence show up in our relationships, our children's relationships with other uh, people, either of the same or opposite sex? How does prudence show up? Yes?
good. So it shows up in, in demonstrating wisdom with friendships or potential spouses. How about getting counsel, whether you call it courtship or not? I think a, a child who is living uh, prudently would want their parents' input and counsel. Um, basically, with, with few exceptions, I mean, sure, there, there are some terrible parents out there, sadly, in this fallen world or parents who are non-existent, but seeking counsel and, and uh, wisdom from others who are in uh, a young person's life um, and not just their echo chamber of friends, immediate same age kind of friends. Fortitude, we already talked about, being courageous enough to, to look for a potential spouse, to pursue marriage even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's work. <laughs> Uh, it is not good for man to be alone. And temperance, that's a big one, isn't it? We just kind of talked about it, didn't we? Sexual purity. Uh, not everything that came out of purity culture was bad. Uh, I, think, I think the encouragement for sexual abstinence was good uh, if framed biblically. Yes, Jamie. Yeah, so where's the, where's the pastor's responsibility to talk about specific sexual sins uh, and then the parents? So uh, parent has free reign, uh, in my opinion, to talk about all the above with their kids and more and more as the child gets older and post-pubescent or whatever the word is for that. Um, and I would encourage that. I'm not there yet. I'm not even saying I'm looking forward to that. But it's, I, I do feel it as a, a burden and responsibility as, as a parent of my children to make sure they're informed, not just of the prohibitions of God, but even more importantly, of the blessings that God has given to us as body, soul, humans to enjoy within the right context that he's, he's given, which is marriage. As far as pastors and those preaching, I would say as it comes up, um, you know, we don't, we don't want to be eisegesis, eisegeting the text and adding things that just come out of nowhere. But if it's in the text and it's an application of, of the text, I think there could be a place for that. Yeah. But, um, but I know of groups out there that that's the only drum that they bang. And that, you know, I think that was kind of part of the problem with purity culture is that that's the only thing that people were hearing. Stephen. Amen. Amen. I can't repeat all that as well as you did, but um, basically just balancing and tempering what we're talking about with marrying young, with reminding ourselves and others that, you know, the idea of youth is a little abstract. It's a, a little bit of a spectrum. And so we want to be careful and balance that by saying, hey, you know, uh, be content with God's providence in your life and continue to trust and wait upon the Lord. Paul, and then we're going to move on.
Yeah, so the question was what was really what was wrong with the purity culture movement of the 90s and early uh, aughts. I think it, it comes down to um, the culture part of purity and the culture that churches and leaders and, and even parents uh, added extra to God's word and God's law. God's word is sufficient for us. And so this is why wisdom is so important. When we begin to create uh, literal check sheets of, you know, and then sign your name at the bottom of this pledge, like I will or won't uh, do certain things, that can be dangerous. Now we're adding to God's law, and how are we any different than the Pharisees? And that, I I think I said it last week, legalism has major damaging repercussions upon uh, people, and, and especially young people. So we want to be careful there. Good question from our out-of-town friend, whoever you are. First uh, Thessalonians, uh, just one more note here on uh, purity, uh, avoiding lust and self-control. First Thessalonians 4, 3 and following. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we, are, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness or in holiness. Well, we could go on and talk about, we've, we've mentioned the, ob, the first obligation that we have as created beings to love and obey God. And the second, an outworking of our love for God is our call to love others, our neighbor. Uh, we see, let's see, uh, we see the idea of marriage covenant supported not only here in Genesis, but explicitly in Malachi chapter 2.14, where we read, The Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God speaks through Malachi. So again, companion and also wife by covenant. Well, uh, I have all these notes on the God-ordained roles for husbands and wife in marriage, but that's a little outside the scope of really the focus of our uh, study this morning. Um, there's a lot of good material on that, and I'm sure any of the elders or older saints here who have been married a while can point you to some great uh, material on roles for husbands and wives. But the point of that here in this context is that we do want to encourage our children as we are raising Uh, boys and girls, sons and daughters, to be young uh, men and young women who are thinking about being someday husbands and someday wives. And what does that look like? And I'll tell you one of the best ways to do that, besides teaching it from God's word very explicitly, is to seek to demonstrate it in your own marriage as uh, parents or as grandparents or as older saints in the church. Uh, And to, to seek to show this is what we believe God teaches uh, husbands and wives to be. Uh, finally, I do want to end kind of on this note, coming full circle to the prohibition against unequally yoked marriages. Um, regarding the principle of an equally yoked or unequally yoked marriage, there are actually two prohibitions here that parents ought to teach their children. The first is parents of believing children may not allow their children to marry unbelievers. Okay, going back to 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, uh, we also see in our confession of faith that this is spelled out. Oh, I'm a, I'm a confessional Baptist. I'm a confessional Christian. Well, this is in our confession, something as practical as not marrying or getting into romantic relationships with someone who is outside the faith. We read in chapter 25 on marriage, paragraph 3, it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment, speaking in in the context of wisdom or Christian liberty, to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord. And therefore, such as profess the true religion should not marry with infidels or idolaters. Neither such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresy. Secondly, first, parents of believing children must not allow their children to marry unbelievers. And I know that once your child leaves their home, there's only so much you can do, right? Uh, but do all that you can within the bounds of uh, uh, love and reason. But secondly, parents of unbelieving children must not allow their children to marry believers. Parents of unbelieving children must not allow their children to marry someone who 
you know does profess Christ. Oh, this might be even harder for Christian parents. They want their children to know the Lord more than anything else. And this young man or young woman comes along who seems to be a Christian, but they've shown an interest in your unsafe son or daughter. Oh, how you want that relationship to work. And yet God calls you to call your child not to be unequally yoked. And as a brother or sister in Christ with that suitor or suitess, I don't know, you are to come alongside them and encourage them to either wait or move on. Something along those lines. Uh, wisdom will, will help dictate that. But that's, 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 part, that's part of this unequally yoking. We should not encourage missionary dating, whether it's our children being the missionaries or being the mission field. Missionary dating is not a biblical strategy that parents should encourage their children to employ. And it cannot go without saying today that if we don't want our children marrying outside of the faith, or as our confession says, true religion, then why would we allow them to date or get involved in deep emotional relationships before marriage with people who are outside the faith? If, if dating, if, if we just defined uh, a, a vanilla version of dating as doing it with an eye towards marriage, not vanilla, but you know, a neutral moral version of dating as a dating with an eye towards marriage, then why would we allow our children to, to date someone outside of the faith? We must not. If your children are still in your home then you hold, or you hold any influence in their lives whatsoever, you who are parents must discourage them with the greatest conviction of being romantically involved with anyone who is not in the faith. And finally for today, leave and cleave. Genesis 2.24 talks about this. We're not going to get to all this, but that's okay. Parents need to understand their role in letting go of their kids when it's time. That's hard to do. One, one brief thing I want to say here. Um, I am so appreciative of my father-in-law, especially in the early days of my marriage to his firstborn and uh, first daughter. I had no chance as a young 21-year-old of ever filling uh, Paige's dad's shoes in her life, Um, doing everything that he did for her as such a a sweet, dear uh, dad. Uh, He was a hard act to follow, and so that created difficulties in our marriage early on, compounded by the fact that I stole her from her family and moved her 1,200 miles away and made her go to a different kind of church with different kinds of words and a different kind of music, plus the fact that she had to start a full-time job right after our honeymoon, 45 minutes away from our apartment just to help us make money and live. And so she would sometimes call her mom back in Kansas and just cry, not to complain, mind you, but just bear her heart to her mom. And at the same time, her dad would often call me and say, don't worry, you're not doing anything wrong. There's nothing you can do here. Just tell her you love her. Give her a hug. She'll be fine. Keep going. The point is, Paige's parents didn't coddle her from afar or encourage her to do something like move back home for a while or push against the changes that God had brought providentially in her life. Instead, they assured her that her feelings were natural and that God and David loved her so she would be just fine. I want to be that kind of parent to my children. I think it sets a good example of what Christ said in Matthew 19, 6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, The husband, the man, is to leave the home and hold fast or cleave to his wife. There's that idea of semper fidelis for the Marines in our church, always faithful to each other. And uh, that's God's design for marriage. Uh, We'll end with this, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So life is messy. Parenting is messy. We need wisdom. We need grace. If anything, raising children uh, teaches us to be humble, doesn't it? It reminds us of our utter dependence on God for strength and wisdom and understanding. I got time for one question or comment before we close. Yes. Amen. Better single than sorry. We want to be prudent and wise. Okay, Chad. Uh, 
uh, to encourage prudence, wisdom, and preach the gospel. We'll talk about that more. I, I didn't even get a chance to repeat the question, but we'll talk more. We're over time by two minutes. Let's pray and we can talk. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you most of all for uh, the gift of your son and the uh, understanding that you've given us that uh, marriage is designed to reflect also the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Lord, help us to be faithful to Christ most of all. Help us to be faithful husbands and wives and help us to be faithful to the calling you've given us as parents of our children. We love you, Lord, and we ask for grace and strength to do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.